Over four decades ago, medical device pioneers John Abley and Pete Nicholas co-founded Boston Scientific to get life-saving technologies into the hands of physicians. Today, thousands of Boston Scientific employees are continuing that mission. We'll begin to tell their stories here on the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to Boston Scientific Talks. This is our newest podcast series. Very happy to bring you episode three. We talked about the peripheral vascular space. I had the chance to meet with Kat Jennings. She's president of peripheral vascular at Boston Scientific and David Knapp. He is vice president of research and development on vascular at Boston Scientific. As we always do, we covered a lot of territory, and that is what the peripheral vascular business at Boston Scientific does. It finds ways or develops tools to open vessels outside of the heart. So it has a lot of territory to cover, and uh, we'll talk about that mission. We'll talk about how they're going about it. We'll talk about their uh, path into medtech and uh, how Boston Scientific has taken on a familiar feel for uh, folks who uh, enjoy time at guidance. Some very high praise coming from uh, from Kat Jennings. So great episode. Enjoyed speaking with both of them. And I know you'll enjoy this conversation. But before we begin, I'd like to bring in our podcast sponsor, Resonetics. So I'm speaking with Bob Baldino. Bob is the Director of Strategic Projects at Resonetics. Bob, could you take a minute and tell us about Resonetics? Resonetics is a global leader in micromanufacturing for the life science industry. Really, we we do it all. I mean, from prototyping with our technology and our Lightspeed Lab, all the way to contract manufacturing, and even prototype development from the beginning, from scratch with our Agile team. We can we can do almost anything you need in the life science industry. We'll hear more from Bob Baldino a little later in the podcast. If you need to find out more about Resonetics right now, you can go to its website, Resonetics.com. That's R E S O N E T I C S.com. Well, Kat Jennings and Dave Knapp, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having us, Tom. Yeah, thank you. This is a, a favorite space of mine. I have a lot of favorite spaces in MedTech. I always say that. I feel like I'm a, <laughs> I'm such a I'm such a MedTech groupie, but the peripheral vascular space is just one that has seen so much attention over the last 20 years. You know, dating back to the mid '90s to the 2000s, is always innovation and movement. So I'm I'm eager to to hear your story and about what's going on in the peripheral vascular space. But before we get to the business and the products, I'd like to understand your stories a bit and how you came into the medtech industry. Kat, let's start with you. Were you always uh, destined to be uh, part of the medtech industry, or did you stumble onto this this wonderful journey? I will tell you, I stumbled into this wonderful journey. I remember going to a, an information session when I was getting my MBA by a company put on by Guidant. Huh? And it was, it really piqued my interest. I thought, gosh, this is amazing. Uh, getting a chance to iterate on technology, getting a chance to work with physicians directly on technology, I just thought was so interesting. And so I joined Guidant, which is now Boston Scientific. And uh, it's been a, a love affair ever since. That's great. Many people that I've talked to have guidance stories, and I always jokingly try to get them to malign the organization, but none of you ever comply. You always speak glowingly about how wonderful it was, so I won't even bother. Dave, how about you? I know you you didn't start in medtech, right? You you actually started in the energy industry? 
Yeah, that's right. So I'm a chemical engineer by training and, you know, like all nerdy chemical engineers, you know, my dream at the time was to work in the oil industry. So I did that. I worked at uh, Amico Oil, which is now BP, for uh, a little less than five years, mostly working in their manufacturing. So I worked in, in, a, in a refinery. I did a lot of work that kind of bridge the gap between essentially our customers delivering product to customers and the, you know, the production that we needed in order to get to them. And uh, so I learned a lot about, I learned a lot about essentially doing a good job by pleasing no one, uh, essentially <laughs> uh, in that role. But this was after I had gotten my bachelor's degree and I, I wanted to get into an area that uh, that had to do with healthcare, and you know, it was a passion of mine, given my kind of my family history and something that I wanted to make a difference. So I went and got my PhD in chemical engineering, but focusing on tissue engineering, and that really kind of propelled me in the direction of of healthcare. And then started at Boston Scientific as my first role, or out of med tech, developing our first drug eluting stent. Oh, it's interesting. Been, it's been fantastic since then. So what year was that? I see, according to my deep research on LinkedIn, senior fellow, yeah, no. September 1999. I mean, it, has, it has a 19 in front of it. So <laughs> <laughs> 1999, just yeah. barely. <laughs> That's about when I started in the industry as well. So I want to get into the, the 90s, 2000s because they were exciting times, but you both sort of entered the company different ways and it certainly has changed. Uh, Kat, I didn't realize you were with Guidant and then came over to Boston Scientific. How has the culture changed over the 20 years? A lot of companies have culture that changes over the last 20 years, but I was thinking about the Guidant acquisition and that was a tumultuous time. And then Michael Mahoney came in and the company's been like skyrocketing ever since. Do you have a sense of how different it was today than perhaps when you started without looking to malign anyone or anything, but what, what's the journey been like? Kat, why don't you take that one first? Sure. And Tom, it's, it's a great question because I love what you said about the guidance culture and it was a really special place. And I will tell you the Boston Scientific of today is very much like that. Oh. Uh, I see a ton of similarities between the way in which guidance operated, the focus on leadership, the focus on innovation, and the way in which the Boston Scientific and the Mike Mahoney era operates. You know, he has been unbelievable in driving a culture inside Boston Scientific that's focused on innovation, on caring about people, on diversity and inclusion. It's It's been a, an incredible journey because you're right. From the time that Guyton was acquired by Boston Scientific, there were some rough years there, sure. right? It, it wasn't smooth sailing. But I will say that I think today and since Mike's been on board, it, it's been unbelievable. That's great. Dave, how about you? How, what's your experience been like? You know, I, I, I guess... For me, uh, when I think about culture, it really comes down to the people that I'm working with day in and day out. And I have to tell you that, honestly, like for me, since day one, I have been absolutely just, I don't know what the right word is, blessed, lucky. I mean, to be surrounded by just the most amazing people, both from a technical and scientific perspective, as well as just people who are collaborative you know, who essentially work as a team. And, you know, we, I would say this has pretty much been throughout my time, you know, at, at BSC and it's, what's kept me at the company this long in many different kinds of roles. 
And the last thing I'll say is that I, you know, I've actually been in peripheral vascular space now for, I mean, I, I, at various times throughout my career, I've worked in it, but uh, this latest stint uh, has been over the last couple of years. And the culture in the in the peripheral vascular and the, the PI space in general is, I may be biased, but I, I feel that it's really the crown jewel of the culture of the company. I mean, we work very, very hard to essentially live our values and, li- and live the behaviors that really define us. And we can get more into what those are, but, you know, a, a big one, you know, for me is that we win as a team. And that's how our leadership all the way from cat on down, basically live our lives every day. And that makes a huge difference for us. That's great. Oh, that's a great message. So, well, let's talk about the business that you're, you're in, the peripheral vascular business. Talk to me like I'm a ignorant podcaster who doesn't quite understand the space. <laughs> I think I know what we're talking about. We're talking about the tiny vessels, but what area of the bodies are you addressing? And yeah, maybe you can just kind of give us a an overview of what kind of products are we we talking about? Obviously, there's stents involved, but I'm sure there's a variety of them. Sure. So when I am uh, walking into a party and somebody asks me, so what is that? What is peripheral interventions? I usually tell them that our business is about uh, opening up blood vessels outside the heart. And we do that both on the arterial side, so in the arteries, as well as in the veins. And that's really the crux of our business is, uh, you know, below the below the chin, outside the heart. And that's and the rest of it's a uh, fair game. <laughs> so, Dave, what are some of the tools that Boston Scientific has developed to, to achieve that task? All right, we'll take a break from this conversation to bring back our sponsor, Resonetics. Once again, I am speaking with Bob Baldino. He is Director of Strategic Projects at Resonetics. Bob, tell me, how does Resonetics work with medical device companies? So Resonetics works with medical device companies in many ways, uh, from just updates and communication from the operations team on how your production program is doing, or from my expertise, the Lightspeed team communicating engineer to engineer from the medical device company to our engineering team, our Lightspeed team, where we have dedicated engineers and equipment that turn around prototypes based on, it could be a a sketch, it could be a print, it could be, you know, just some notes in an email. And what we really are, are, are 10 Lightspeed Labs, 150 engineers plus and growing, how we work together to deliver what a customer needs is we'll take what we know about our technology. We'll talk to the customer either on a phone call or maybe over email and bring some of our design for manufacturing feedback to the table so that we can really make sure that we've identified the best, you know, most manufacturable method to deliver this medical part, but also what works the best for the customer and their application. And Bob, we'd like to hear more about the Lightspeed Lab. What is your role at Lightspeed Lab? I am the Director of Strategic Projects for the Lightspeed Lab in Resonetics. And what that means basically is that, you know, I've I've been on the Lightspeed Lab for over 10 years. I know the technologies very well. I know a lot of our engineers very well. And I am kind of the front line on brand new complicated programs. Think sub-assemblies, think, you know, unusual laser cutting paths or something that's really a, a technical challenge, right? So my role is to connect with the many other engineering managers, the other engineers on the Lightspeed team from any 
kind of different technical background, right? We do laser processing. We do night melt processing. We have semi-finished materials like precision stainless steel, platinum iridium tubing, night melt wire, things like that. Uh, we, you know, we have a tremendous metal fabrication team with all kinds of different capabilities, centerless grinding, photochem- photochemical uh, machining and CNC machining. And we also have sensors and batteries that we can, that we can sell off the shelf or even make custom. So when I see sub-assemblies come to Resonetics and all of a sudden we've got all these engineers and facilities that can work together to put each piece of the puzzle together and make a you know tremendous sub-assembly, I get really excited because we can really take all of our tools and use them all at once instead of just leveraging our independent technologies. And finally, Bob, these are interesting times in medical devices. How do you see the industry changing? What's, what's coming up in the future? Well, first of all, the way the industry communicates, I see that changing and moving uh, even more digital, right? I mean, the last couple of years have already been pretty digital with how we interact with the internet, but Resonetics is investing a lot in our in our website and how we can get, uh, how we reach out to customers and how they reach out to us. We've got a connect with an expert tool on our website. It could be me, it could be any of our engineers on the Lightspeed team. And you know what that tool does is it filters down your, you know, what you're looking for. It's only a couple questions. You can, you know, get dialed right into laser cut tubing or maybe centerless grinding. And you can actually submit the content that you need for a quote into this tool and it'll get you in touch with that um, corresponding technical expert at ResNX. Another thing I see in the industry is, you know, we're always getting pressure, medical device companies are, to reduce their size, their footprint in the body. You know, the the wall thicknesses are getting thinner and thinner. Well, the technologies and acquisitions that Resonetics has continued to build around all focus on small size, tight tolerance, miniaturization of devices. So I think really we're in a great spot to help grow with the industry. That's great. Thank you, Bob Baldino of Resonetics for joining us on the podcast. Thanks to Resonetics for sponsoring this episode of Boston Scientific Talks. Once again, for more information, just go to Resonetics website. It's resonetics.com. R-E-S-O-N-E-T-I-C-S.com. So, Dave, what are some of the tools that Boston Scientific has developed to, to achieve that task? Yeah. Well, we could pretty much take the rest of the hour for this uh, <laughs> question, if you'd like. It's a, it's a huge portfolio, actually, you know, for PI, and it's a little daunting for me, actually, coming into this role to to you know to really learn that portfolio. But you know, some of the key products that that I guess I've been involved in throughout my career and and others on the side of opening arteries. You know, we have a, a business that and 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 just a, a set of products really that are, you know, I think not matched by another company. And they essentially revolve around things like opening up a a blood vessel with a drug eluding stent. And in the peripheral vascular space, a lot of those stents are are self-expanding stents, not all, but some of them are, you know, in addition to that, we also have drug coated balloons, which are essentially, you know, coated with a anti-proliferative agent to help keep arteries open. And so those kind of occupy one segment of the business. And there's a lot of other devices around those, you know, as to how those get used. And then there's another part of the business that really has to do with clots, blood clots, and clearing out blood clots. Um, So, you know, we have a number of products that depending on the uh, anatomy, basically, that you're talking about, this can range from arterial clot 
to plots in the venous system. You've probably heard of people getting deep venous thrombosis or DDT. And then, you know, importantly, treating uh, patients that, uh, you know, unfortunately may have experienced a pulmonary embolism, you know, so all of those things are, are within kind of the wheelhouse of what we would essentially call clot management. So those are the main areas I'd say, I I just add one more, which is actually the exception to what Kat talked about earlier, which is that we we also have a product, uh, which is used to, to treat superficial venous insufficiency and uh, varicose veins. And that one actually has the opposite effect of, of shutting down blood vessels where, you know, that is uh, desired. And, and, and so we do have a product line in that area as well. Great. So Kat, talk to me about the market, the patients that you serve, but also the the clinicians that you, uh, that you work with, who, who are the, uh, who are the clinicians that are, that are your customers that are your advisors and that use your devices? Sure. So on top of having a broad portfolio of products, we also have a really broad spectrum of physicians Mm -hmm. who use our devices in different parts of the hospital and sometimes even outside of the hospital. So our main customers tend to be vascular surgeons, interventional cardiologists, and interventional radiologists. Those three specialties probably make up over 90% of all of the physicians that use our products. And you know, it's interesting because they all have different backgrounds and different sets of beliefs I was about say that products. They don't sound like uh, the same type of physician at all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they do and no, they don't. you're exactly right. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Well, and especially as we thought about launching drug-coded technologies, you know, this is a space that cardiologists have been living in for decades, right? But for interventional radiologists and for vascular surgeons, it, it's a bit of a new space and, it, and new ideas, new sets of ideas. How has working with these physicians changed over the last uh, decade or so with just the way that devices are sold? I would guess it's still very much a, the decisions are very much still made on a physician by physician level. Like you really have to sell the product to the physician first, as opposed to convince the technology committee, because it's not like a big cap item. Have these devices sort of been swept up in the price sensitivity that has hit other parts of metal devices? I'd say you're right. There's still a, a tremendous amount of physician preference in these categories, but you know we're not immune to the requirement for VAC committees and, and things like that. So those things are an impact for us. And it's actually one of the reasons that we made big investments in clinical data and to demonstrate comparative effectiveness of our devices versus other devices. You know, to be honest, Peripheral has been a space that has been pretty light on clinical data. A lot of the devices hmm. that are used are based off of, it works in my hands, and so I trust it. Interesting. Versus being based on large randomized clinical trials. And that was one of the things that I would say we really pioneered as an organization with the help of our advisors and our uh, investigators. That's interesting. I, I was going to ask, yeah, what are what are the qualities that these physicians look for in choosing their devices? Is it just merely how the delivery device, the delivery system feels in their hands? It's just easy for them to use. You answered the question for me, but I kind of want to just drill a little more. When has the emphasis on clinical data sort of emerged and what does that look like for for Boston Scientific? You've been running trials for the last two years, the last five years, the last 10 years. Uh, You don't have to go over every single one of them, but just give me a sense of where we are in in that transition. Yeah, no, it's a great question. You know, and I'd say it's really been a, a 10-year journey for us in terms of driving more clinical data. And, and part of it is 
You know, the peripheral vascular space has an incredible number of companies that produce products for these different disease states. And we saw that and we thought we've got to differentiate. We can't have a product that's a me too. And it, it kind of goes back to our meaningful innovation pillar, right? If we're going to bring more products to market, they've got to be different. And we've got to be willing to prove that with data so that when physicians do have to go to a VAC and get this product approved, it's easier to do because we've demonstrated that it's superior than what's available on the market today. And that really drove a lot of our thinking. And you know, we were talking offline earlier about risks, and we were one of the first companies, really the first company in the peripheral vascular space to do these type of comparative effectiveness trials to say, we think our device is better. And let's show you that in a randomized clinical prospective fashion. Interesting. Can you tell me a little bit about that trial specifically and how the market responded to it? How did, did surgeons see the value in, in having the data and say, okay, well, maybe, you know, maybe I need to look at other things other than how things feel in my hands as I'm delivering them. Yeah, no, exactly. So what we did is we ran a randomized clinical trial of our drug-eluting stent, Alluvia, versus the only other drug-coated device in the space that the product is from Cook called Zilber PTX. And we ran a randomized trial over 400 patients, US, Japan, Europe. And we said, at a minimum, is our stent non-inferior to show that we can get FDA approval and then secondly, is it actually better at one year, at two years? So looking at keeping these blood vessels open over time, because to be honest, for a lot of these patients, the current technology was not very good. You know, we're used to thinking about coronary stents, right? Where the rate of reintervention is like one in 10, less than one in 10 at one year. But in the peripheral vascular space and these vessels in your legs, the reinterventions rates are like one in three patients gets wow. reintervened at, at one year, one in four patients gets reintervened at one year. And we thought, gosh, we can do better. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's what we really wanted to demonstrate is, you know, the technology that we have is superior. And we've, we've done that trial. We've done another randomized trial to show that it's better than bare metal stents. And it's really put us on a journey to redefine what clinical data looks like in the peripheral space. And just final question on, on this part. The stents are delivered, I imagine, through a cut in the groin, like most interventional procedures. That's You're exactly right. Yeah. You're exactly right. So it's non-invasive, but it's pretty invasive. I mean, it, it's not a non, it's, it's not a small invasive. thing. Yeah. But for someone who has to undergo a procedure multiple times, I'm sure they're not looking forward to having that happen, you know, once every no. couple of years. No, exactly. Exactly. And frankly, we want to make sure that it stays open and they don't need to come back for that. Yeah. Dave, I'd love to understand the challenges to designing devices like these for the peripheral vascular vessels for the peripheral vascular system. I have to imagine it's a very, you're working in a very small space. Obviously uh, the vessels are you know, probably, I'm guessing pretty fragile. It's got to be a unique engineering challenge to design these products. Absolutely. And taking us back, because I think the clinical trials that we ran were sort of the end you know, quote unquote, the end of the proof, you know, that it, that it works, but the journey to actually get to that point was one that really required what I would say is a lot of listening, you know, to really understand what unmet clinical need was, it, it, you know, it isn't just about the re-intervention rates, you know, it's also about how the products are used, 
and what patients they're used on. So we spent a lot of time, you know, trying to understand for these different physician groups, you know, how they would use the product and where they would use them. And so when we first started doing this work, we had done, you know, some uh, already some really good work from a pharmaceutical perspective in the coronary space. And as a result of that, you know, we had those competencies, you know, in the company, but in the peripheral space, it's really very, a very different environment, especially, you know, you're talking about mechanically, uh, you know, very challenging environments in the leg. It's not that coronary is not a mechanically challenging environment, you know, with the beating of the heart, but it's actually a more severe mechanical situation with the bending and twisting, stretching, et cetera, that can happen in the legs. So we actually spent a large amount of resources just developing a stent that was purpose-built for that anatomy, right? So that was really had nothing to do with at that time, the actual pharmaceutical aspect of it. But once we had that stent platform, we then designed a drug coating that was actually releases drug very differently than our coronary product over a longer period of time that basically addresses the needs in the peripheral vascular space uniquely. And, you know, that's at least from the drug eluting stent perspective, the, the story, you know, that really differentiated our product versus our competitors. You know, I would say on drug coated balloons, Similar kind of story, you know, we, we really started out with, again, you know, I think a high level of competency in the pharmaceutical space from our, our previous experience there, but really a very different kind of design challenge when you're talking about a drug coated balloon. You know, we really wanted to understand what are the key design features that doctors care about and that patients need. So we spent a lot of time with that and basically we're able to get better performance and, you know, with our device with a, what I would say is essentially a, an improved safety profile, you know, on the device, less drug, you know, fewer particulates generated. So with the stents, the materials you're using, are they the same materials you'd use in a coronary stent, just maybe of a smaller scale, or, or do you find you need different materials that are more, more flexible or bouncy? I don't know. Absolutely. It's different uh, because, you know, for coronary stents, the materials that are used are essentially metals that, you know, when you expand them with a balloon, they stay open, right? So those are things like, you know, on our stent, it's a platinum chromium alloy of stainless steel. Um, other stents use cobalt chromium alloys, et cetera. But with these stents, they actually are made of nitinol. And what that allows us to do is uh, number one, it allows us to essentially have the stents, essentially have the correct diameter for what they're needed when they're deployed, but they also can be essentially, the diameter of them can be reduced substantially into the catheter so that the approach is as atraumatic for the patient as possible, right? And the profile of those devices is as small as possible. So nitinol works best in these situations where there's, you know, flex, crush, uh, stretching, twisting, a nitinol can bear that, those kinds of loads. You mentioned the, the drug coating that goes on these that, that are delivered. I mean, when you design a device, you design it 
other areas, they design their devices with the sole intent that all the therapeutic benefit is going to come through that device. You've got the addition of the drug. How do you sort of balance the two to ensure that you're delivering the amount of benefit that you want to benefit, even though you're sort of using two different a device and a drug to, to achieve that benefit? How, how challenging is that to kind of balance the two out? Yeah. I mean, that's really the secret sauce, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and, and not so secret, I guess, but I mean, the, the, <laughs> some, some the, secrets. the yeah. yeah, but I mean, it's the key element because basically these are mechanical devices, right? I mean, they're, they're as Kat, you know, talked about earlier, you know, they're, we're opening up arteries. So essentially that's what the mechanical stent does. And understanding the underlying biology of what happens when you actually open up a stent in the vascular, you know, in the vasculature and, and you sort of see, okay, what is the inflammatory response of that? How does that evolve over time? It's that kind of cascade of biology and physiology that uh, really dictates what the drug evolution needs to be. Right. So our, our design team essentially used, you know, our knowledge and, and the guidance of our key physician and scientist leaders, you know, to be able to design the, what we have learned now is the, you know, essentially correct drug elution profile for those devices. And for a stent, you know, it's very different than uh, the situation for a drug coated balloon as well. So it's a, it, it really has to do with the combination of the mechanical you know, component of the therapy, as well as the correct drug elution that corresponds to that. Interesting. Yeah, Tom, maybe I'll just add to that. Please do. Uh, yep. Because I think this is a great example of, of really deeply understanding what is happening in these vessels. So we went and looked at this amazing literature out of Japan, because one of the amazing things about Japan is the way in which they follow patients is extremely methodical. And they follow patients at very short time intervals. So you really get a sense, you know, when I talked about these vessels reocclude, right, they close back up, you know, at a rate of one to one in three or one in four. When you look at the Japanese data, you really get a sense of what are the time points, right? What are these critical moments after the implant of the device where they close? And that really drove us to say the other drug eluding device on the market had a really short window. So all of the drug was gone in, in call it 50 to 60 days. But what we saw in the Japanese data was that the actual closing of the vessel happened much later. And so our hypothesis was, if we have drug that eludes over a longer period of time, we can actually maintain these vessels open longer. And that's going to be to... Dave's point, right? The secret sauce around our devices. And that's really how we came up with this design was looking at, okay, what does the literature tell us? What can we learn from physicians about how this actually happens in the real world? And then translate that into a new technology and a new approach to treating the disease. Interesting. So taking that and moving from there, looking ahead, Where's the impetus for innovation? I know companies like Boston Scientific, you're innovating all the time, but are there surgeons or are there physicians out there who are, who are telling you we need X, we need Y, we need Z, you need to work on this? Is that where the input's coming from? Is it coming from patients who are saying we don't want to undergo a procedure every couple of years? Where are the, the future good ideas coming from? I'd say it's a really close collaboration with physicians. 
you know, they help us understand better what their problems are. And then we've got an amazing team. Dave's got an amazing team of folks who think about these problems and how to solve them every day. And I'd say it's that it's that close connection that that helps us, you know, being in the labs, listening to the feedback, seeing with our own eyes, what are the challenges that they're facing? And then really having an amazing group of advisors that's helped shepherd us on this journey. Because I'll be honest, when we were going through this journey of looking at a drug eluding stent and a drug coated balloon, there were a lot of questions in our minds about which one to go after. And we had a lot of conversations with our advisory board around, you know, which one is the more attractive solution. And I really distinctly remember in my mind, you know, a physician raising his hand and saying in the meeting, you can't do one or the other. You have to do both. You have to find a way to do both because there's a critical need here. And the types of problems you're solving with a drug eluding stent are different from the problems you're solving with a drug coated balloon. And it really forced us to take a step back and say, okay, how do we find a way to fund both these programs? So I think it's that really close collaboration and and that investment, frankly, that our advisors feel in in the company and into the technology that that's really propelled us. Last question for the both of you. Where is this industry headed? We've seen technological leaps from stents to drug coding stents and then with the balloons and on and on. Drug coated balloons. What's next? I mean, you're without, I'm sure you're not going to announce anything here, but you know, Boston Scientific has been had his name attached with other companies that are developing other ways of doing things, different ways of doing things. Dave, I'll start with you and then Kat, you can finish up. What does this area maybe look like in, in five or 10 years? Does your portfolio look markedly different than it does today in five or 10 years? Are there new technologies being developed to, to solve these problems? Well, I guess I'll start with, you know, the degree to which it takes, I have to give credit to our you know, cross-functional partners in this space, but the degree to which it, even with the kinds of clinical trials uh, that we have run, that we've, that we've discussed earlier, and the evidence that we've provided and, and the great products that we have, the degree to which it takes effort to kind of get the word out, to essentially affect the usage of, you know, physicians globally cannot just be understated. It's so, I mean, there's a lot of work in just helping, you know, physicians to understand, you know, essentially the importance of, and of using the DES and DCB in the way that Kat just described. Um, so there's a lot of work happening there as well as just kind of expanding the different anatomies and areas you know, that we can use those products. So that's one piece of it. But if I think about going forward five years in this space, I think, you know, peripheral vascular is just, as you kind of alluded to it at the beginning, it's a lot of real estate in the <laughs> body. You know, there, there's a many, many unmet clinical needs and, and too many, right, for us, you know, to address at any one time, right? So we have to be very choosy about the work. And so we have a very disciplined process by which we, you know, sort of prioritize in our strategy. Um, but, you know, there are, I think, some new anatomies that we can take the learnings, you know, from the arteries in the leg and apply those learnings to, you know, new, essentially new anatomies within the body. And, and it's not 
just as we kind of talked about, it's not just about going to take that that technology and and then land it in a new anatomy. It's it's a new clinical problem in every situation, right? And a new way of using those products. So, you know, really tough engineering and you know clinical challenges for us ahead. Same question, final answer for you. What opportunities are you looking at today? If you can share anything, and what does your portfolio look like? Uh... Five or ten years from now. So I'll tell you, you know, for us, it's it's follow the problem, yep. right? And we've I think we've addressed the the issues in the vessels between the hip and the knee, but there's a whole range of problems below the knee that frankly no one's figured out. And so I think about how do we bring new technologies to bear on that part of the body so that the same type of improvement we've been able to see above the knee can be demonstrated below the knee. As Dave said, it's probably going to take some different type of technology and then maybe a different approach, but that's how we think about it. We see what are the big unmet needs in the market and how do we go after it? And so I'd say that's one area. I think we touched on this at the very beginning, but figuring out ways to clear clot in the body, I think there continues to be a lot of room for improvement there. And so that's going to be an area that we're going to continue to look at. And then, you know, Boston Scientific, we certainly have never made our last acquisition. We're always looking both internally and externally, right, around what technologies do we think make sense to fit together with our existing portfolio. And so we're always thinking about how do we maximize our internal portfolio, but also how do we make sure we're keeping an eye on on what's happening outside the company and are there opportunities to bring that technology inside the organization. Very well answered. Nice job. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been a, a really fun conversation. I, I've learned a lot. Thank you both for, for joining us on the podcast and sharing your stories. Awesome. Thanks so much, Tom. Thanks, Tom. It's a pleasure. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. Thanks, of course, to Kat Jennings and Dave Knapp for joining us on the podcast and to Resonetics for sponsoring this episode. Please make sure you subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network so you don't miss a future episode of Boston Scientific Talks or our other great podcasts. You can find them all at devicetalks.com. Please share this episode of Boston Scientific Talks on your social media channels. And when you do, make sure you link to or connect with Boston Scientific. And of course, me, I am on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. Please connect. It would be great to uh, be part of your future MedTech conversations. Once again, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Boston Scientific Talks. We're already working on the next great episode. We'll be sending your way very soon. Take care, everybody.